What's up, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is episode 253 of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you can follow our social pages on Twitter and Facebook for the latest updates. Um, would like to say thank you to uh, John Veneziano coming back on Guest Friday last week. Nice conversation that we had about the revolution. Uh, so you can go check that out if you haven't already. Uh, guest Friday this week will have a uh, another returning guest, uh, Derek Welch. Uh, we'll return to the program. We'll be talking uh, some Celtics as we are, you know, <laughs> seems like we're going to be talking about the off season. Um, so that will be up later this week, later on Friday. Um, so you can check that out as well. Uh, you can check out some of my written content at Musket Fire, which is a fan-sided Patriots site. Um, we will be talking some Patriots today. Um, there are a good amount of uh, Patriots things to get to, um, but I think we're going to start where you would imagine that we would start um, on this Tuesday morning, day after Memorial Day, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to do a Celtics postmortem. You know, it's a uh, not the best feeling in the world, you know, having to wake up into this podcast after the, you know, Celtics fall short in a game seven and, you know, not really a game that ever was close. Um, you know, it just it never felt like the Celtics were a team that really had any type of control of that game last night. And, you know, you can say a bunch of things, whether, you know, Jason Tatum's ankle wasn't right, which it clearly wasn't you know, Jalen Brown and the team with too many turnovers um, and just another poor three-point shooting night. Um, but I think, you know, it is interesting that, you know, I was on this program last week and we were talking about, you know, where do the Celtics go after being down three games to nothing, you know. Um, certainly was not on my radar that they would extend uh, the series to a game seven. You know, I think that I always had belief that they could do it, but I think, you know, looking at this series in a vacuum, the Celtics were able to get this to a game seven, and I think that, you know, they deserve credit for that. You know, this is not to say that, you know, you know, we're not sitting here talking about a team that got swept. You know, we're not sitting here talking about a team that lost in five, and I know that it's, you know, easy to say, oh, you know, well, you come back from a 3-0 deficit, you should be able to win a game seven. And, you know, you probably should. Um, but I think that, you know, if we want to specifically talk about this game last night, you know, Jason Tatum rolls his ankle um, on the first play of the game. And I think really affected um, the way that they played, especially offensively, because, you know, it's not only what the ankle injury physically affects Tatum, in terms of his ability to score, but I think it just affected his ability to, you know, be effective in any way. And I think that, you know, it's commendable that he tried to play through that ankle injury. You know, was it maybe the best decision to keep playing him? You know, perhaps not. I mean, I don't really know if that's worthy of a conversation, um, but I think just him not being himself affected their offense in the way that he wasn't able to get the lift on his jump shots. He wasn't able to, 
you know, be as aggressive driving to the basket. You know, he wasn't able to, you know, create open looks for other guys. You know, I think that it was interesting that, you know, the Heat didn't really seem to attack him with a double um, when he, you know, had the ball. You know, the Heat playing a lot of that zone. Um, and, you know, I think it just bothers the Celtics. Um, I don't really know why. You know, it seems like it's something that the Heat have done against this team forever, you know, for years. And for whatever reason, it still just flummoxes the Celtics. I'm not really sure why, but I think, you know, Tatum unable to get open looks for other guys, you know, really hindered their ability to hit shots. And yes, they missed a lot of open shots, but I think that a lot of what you saw last night was the Celtics knowing that, you know, Jason was not 100% and trying to shoot themselves back into the game, which is honestly not a good recipe. And then you couple that with the turnovers and Jalen Brown trying to do too much. It's like, you're not going to win that game, you know. Another bad shooting night from three. Another game that you turn the ball over a lot. They turn the ball all over a lot in game six. You know, even though they were able to win on that miraculous tip-in, they still turn the ball over a lot. You know, and I think that, honestly, they were lucky to win that game six. You know, they probably should have lost. And I think, you know, I don't want to pin this whole game on Jason Tatum's ankle because that's, you know, you have four other guys that are playing on the court at that time. And I think, you know, it's... You know, it's it's hard because you don't want to make excuses because they're professional athletes. And, you know, Jalen Brown is second team All-NBA. And I think in situations like that, you expect him to, you know, put the team on his shoulders. But I think that ultimately it just kind of just seems to be an issue when he tries to do too much and he's, you know, dribbling into traffic and things like that. And I think that it's, you know, really frustrating to watch. Um and I think in terms of the future of the team, you know, we can get into that in a little bit, but I just think that, you know, this was a Heat team that I think, yes, the Celtics were playing these elimination games from games four to game six, but I think that the Heat flipped a switch in this game that they were facing elimination. You know, I think that they obviously did play around with the Celtics for those three games and they almost, you know, could have lost the series. Um, but I think the fact that they were facing elimination in this game seven was like, you know, enough for them to be able to kind of turn the tide, you know, and I don't want to go back to Tatum's ankle injury, but, you know, this is a Heat team that scored 103 points last night. I don't think the Celtics played, you know, particularly bad defensively, you know, sure the Heat were able to, you know, hit a lot of shots. They made, you know, 50% of the threes you know, shot 48%. I know that, you know, those numbers don't necessarily say that, oh, the Celtics played a good defensive game, but it's like they scored 103 points. That's not something that really should be insurmountable to this team. And I think that, you know, you shoot 39%, you shoot 21% from three. It was not really something that a lot of us expected, you know, after they shot 20% in game six from three. Um, you know, and it's just, it's just disappointing because it just seemed like it was, you know, if you folks remember that 
you know, game seven that they lost to the Cavaliers in 2018, where they could not make a shot. It was eerily similar to that game, um, that just nothing would fall. The Celtics are, you know, trying to take too many contested threes. The ball movement stopped, and I just think that, you know, it just the whole thing was just a bad combination. The Heat playing an elimination game for the first time this postseason. You know, Jason Tatum rolling his ankle. Jalen Brown, you know, trying to do too much, turning the ball over too much, and the Celtics not getting their threes to fall. And I think it kind of was just a perfect storm um, in that game last night. And I think that, again, this team does deserve credit for being able to force this to a Game 7. You know, they could have easily just thrown in the towel in Game 4 and gone home. You know, after falling behind, I think it was by like 10 in the third quarter of Game 4. You know, they could have just given up. And I think that they do deserve some credit for being able to get back into the series, get it to a point that it was, you know, somewhat respectable so that if you lost, it's, you know, a loss in a, in a game seven that you probably shouldn't have been in in the first place. Um, but I think, you know, it just is for sure disappointing, you know, and it's for sure a, a disappointment that, you know, they couldn't complete the comeback and, you know, having these issues playing games at home. Um, but I think that, you know, sometimes things like this happen. And I think, you know, again, or not again, but I think these are two teams that are so familiar with each other. You know, they've played in three conference finals in the last four years. You know, last year's series went to a game seven. And the Heat probably should have won that game. You know, if you look at Butler missing that shot in the last minute, you know, and it's like the Heat, I think, were probably especially motivated in this game where it's like, okay, we blew a chance on our home floor last year. You know, we're going to return the favor. And I think in a vacuum, you look at this season that it just came down to a game seven in a conference final, kind of like it did last year. You got the bounces to go your way last year. You know, Tatum rolls his ankle. I don't know if it's necessarily, you know, bad bounces in this game. I wouldn't say that. But I think, you know, it's not, I don't think it's as catastrophic or as bad of a loss as people are making it out to be. You know, I think around here, naturally, people are going to be dramatic. And, you know, this is a team that went to the finals last year. They should have gotten back. And I think we lose sight of how hard it is to get to the NBA Finals in consecutive years. I mean, yes, teams have done it, but it's not really that common, you know? It's only, like, the special teams, the teams that win multiple championships that are able to do it, you know, year after year. You know, we're going to have, I think, what, new teams in the Finals for the third year in a row, fourth year, whatever it is, you know? It's hard to make the NBA Finals. You know, it's not easy, and I think that everyone wanted to look past maybe some of the issues that they had this season, that, hey, they won 57 games, they should be in the NBA Finals, but it's like, you have to go out and play, you have to play these games. Um, And I think, you know, before we get into the future of this Celtics team in the offseason, I do kind of want to talk for a second about 
talking about the Heat, that they're an eight seed. And I think it's a little bit disrespectful if people are going to be pulling this, you know, the Celtics lost to an eight seed. You know, it's just like the Heat are not a pushover team. You know, this is not the New York Knicks. This is not, you know, and I understand the Celtics are more talented and they probably should have won the series. But it's like the Heat are a team that they, they know you. You know, they've played you three in the last three of the last four Eastern Conference Finals. It's like, this is not some team that's, you know, just in kind of a one-off postseason run. This is not the Atlanta Hawks two years ago. You know, this is a, you know, veteran group that is pretty much the same group as last year's team. You know, Tyler Hero was playing in that conference finals, but if you remember, he was not 100%. I'm pretty sure that he had some, you know, groin injury that was bothering him the entire series. Missed a couple games. I can't remember how many games, but it's virtually the same team. And it's just, this Heat team is not bad. I understand that the regular season made it look like they were not a good team, which statistically they weren't. You know, they were near the bottom of the league in three-point shooting, you know, points and stuff like that. Um, But it's like, you have to give that team credit. You know, you can't just sit up here and be like, this is a tragic, catastrophic loss. The Celtics lost to an eight seed. There's more context than that, you know. And um, it's like, I bet that the same people that are saying this now are the very same people that wanted to avoid the heat in the first round. And so it's like, you know, you can't just do this revisionist history to be like, oh, they're an eight seed. You should have beaten them. And it's like, yes, you should have. But it's like, there is context to that, that the Heat are a good basketball team. You know, yes, I understand the Celtics. It seems like gave away this series with some of the early losses in the series. But it's like, this is not a pushover Heat team. This is a good basketball team. And they're in the finals for a reason. You know, now I happen to think Denver is going to probably beat them, but I don't think it has anything to do with the Heat because, honestly, even if the Celtics won that game last night, I'm not sure that I would pick them against the Nuggets. And I think if we're looking at it like this, you know, would you rather lose this game last night or would you rather lose in the finals again? Because it's like a kind of, I feel like it was kind of trending that way. Because the Celtics, I think, as good as they were with games four and six, they were pretty inconsistent, these playoffs. And I just think Denver has been start to finish, you know, from the first round to the conference finals. They have been by far the best team in the playoffs. You know, it's not even been particularly close. You know, you could argue that until the conference finals, you know, the Heat probably had played the best but it's like the Nuggets are the best team in the league at the moment, and I think they have the most to prove. So, you know, I kind of don't think it would have mattered if the Celtics had won this series, but, you know, maybe a conversation for another day. But um, I think thinking about, you know, this offseason and the decisions the Celtics are going to have to make, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult because... I think that they are on the right track with the players that they have. You know, I think, unfortunately, you look at 
Tatum with a rolled ankle in Game 7, and then Brogdon with his arm injury really was not the same guy following, following that injury. And I think that it's too bad because they brought him in to this team for games like last night. You know, not like they thought Tatum would get hurt, but it's like you brought in Brogdon to kind of be that second scorer or the, or the scorer off the bench, so to speak. Um, and he was outstanding in the regular season. You know, had plenty of games where he had, you know, 20-plus point games where maybe Tatum didn't have his best game. And it's like, it's games like that that you got him for. But unfortunately, he was hurt, you know, and really was not the same player. And I think that, you know, he's someone that I'd like to keep around. I think that there is a possibility based on the amount of money that he makes, that he could be a possible trade candidate. I think Marcus Smart could be as well. Um, but I think the overarching thing for me going into this offseason is you need to have a normal offseason. And what I mean by that is, you know, identifying your most important pieces, your stars, Tatum and Brown, and I think your head coach, as much as that sounds crazy to some people, this is a Celtics team that has had three coaches in three years. They have not had a normal offseason in a couple of years. You know, you think about the offseasons that they had after the bubble. You know, the offseason they had after the 2021 season. You know, hiring Ime, moving Brad to the front office. You know, the offseason they had last year, you know, with Ime and his whole, you know, situation. You know, and then having to you know, name an interim coach days before training camp, you know, and I think to Joe's credit, I think he did the best job he could guiding this team to winning 57 games, getting them to a game seven in the conference finals. You know, I know in a vacuum that there were, yeah, a lot of things in the bigger picture that were an issue, but I don't think that he's the problem. He's been put into a, in an, into an impossible decision an impossible position, which we talked about last week. And I just think moving on from him is not the right thing to do. You can't be going on four coaches in four years. You know, the one position that you have had the most turnover in the last couple of years has been the head coach position. Why do you, why do we want to create more instability at a position that's already been unstable? That doesn't make sense to me. So I think you know, he, he will be here. Tatum and Brown will be here. You know, and then I think you work out the rest of the roster from there. You know, do you trade Brogdon? Do you trade Smart? Do you trade Gallinari's contract? Do you trade Peyton Pritchard? You know, what do you do with Grant Williams? You know, I think that those are all kind of the, you know, major decisions. And despite... You know, Jalen having a bad game last night, you sign him to a Supermax because I just like, where else are you going to get that level of talent to pair with Jason Tatum? You know, I know that he has these bad games and it happens, but he's a second team all NBA. You know, if you want to find a better player than him, you know what? Are you trying to get Damian Lillard, a guy who's going to be 33 years old when the season starts? You know, it's just, I don't understand the people that want to get rid of him, you know, because it's like, 
what are you really going to do to replace him? You know, you have two All-NBA players. Don't you want to keep your All-NBA players? I just, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And I think, how are you, like, are you really going to get better by trading him for, you know, Lillard or Bradley Beal or whatever, you know, player that you think is available? You know, it's just, so I think that, you know, Tatum and Brown are your guys until, they, they just are your guys. And so I think that, you know, identifying the core pieces that are most important to your team, the two superstars and your coach, you figure out the rest of the roster from there. You know, could it be time to move on from Marcus Smart? I think it could be, you know. Do they move on from Brogdon? You know, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what kind of decisions that they make. Um, but it will be interesting to see, you know, Gallinari being healthy. I think that will be huge, you know, assuming that he comes back, which I think he will, because I believe that he has a player option. Um, but I think that he comes back, you know, and then what does the rest of the roster look like? You know, what do you do with Grant Williams? Because, yes, as much as he, you know, said he wanted, you know, $20 million a year, or at least that's the thought, has his value gone down, you know, based on the lack of playing time and maybe some games this postseason where it really wasn't that good. You know, who knows? Does it affect his value? And if it does, can the Celtics afford to keep him? You know, but I think it's about stability this offseason. You know, if the biggest thing that you do is trade Marcus Smart, that's fine. You know, because I know that you know, he means so much to this team and this organization with the way that he plays, but it could just be that they need someone with a different skill set. They need someone that's a little bit more of a traditional pass-first guy, you know. And to Marcus's credit, you know, he has, for the most part, I think done a great job since last season, you know, being put into that point guard spot. And for the most part, I think, being able to perform at a good level. You know, he's had a lot of games this year where he has a lot of assists, you know, but I think that maybe there needs to be a change, you know, with the core three of them that, you know, all too often this is a team that gets too comfortable with leads. And I'm not trying to pin this on, you know, Marcus Smart, but it's like something needs to change with the team's DNA that they stop playing like that. You know, and I don't know, you know, what needs to change. Is it a personnel change? You know, I don't think it's a coaching change. You know, we talked about this, you know, at length last week that I don't think it's a coaching problem. You know, I think it's kind of a player problem, but, you know, what do you do? So it's certainly going to be an interesting offseason. You know, it's frustrating for sure, but, you know, you hope that, they can learn from this. You hope that Joe Missoula can, you know, learn from this playoff run, you know, and recognize some of maybe the things that he didn't do as well. You know, I think that you're going to see a lot of assistant coaches being brought in, um, you know, to fill out the staff. You know, Joe has an opportunity to build his coaching staff and, you know, see if they can bring in a high-level assistant. You know, I think they need to bring in someone that's going to work with the defense, that's going to be able to you know, get more out of them this season. I think the defense, which kind of was their calling card last year, kind of went away this year. 
you know, and I think that it's not all Joe's fault. I mean, I think he was put, again, put in a terrible position, being named the head coach days before training camp, you know, being kind of more of an offensive guy and maybe not focusing as much on defense, but they need more assistant coaches. And I think being put in such a crazy position, being down, you know, two, three coaches on the coaching staff, you know, made things really difficult. So I hope that they can just get more, you know, bodies on that bench. So it's not kind of a whole thing that Joe has to jumble. So, you know, he's coming back. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are coming back. You know, the last thing I'm going to say about Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum said after last night's game that the Celtics need to make it a priority to give Jalen that Supermax contract. And if your superstar player, you know, tells you you need to sign this guy, you sign that guy. You know, it's just the last thing you want to do is make Jason Tatum upset. He's your superstar player, and you should listen to him. So, you know, that's kind of all I'm going to say. Um, that Yeah, that's the last thing I'll say about the Celtics. Um, so I think we'll move on, talk a little Red Sox. Uh, team had an off day yesterday. Yeah, team had an off day yesterday, uh, coming off a series, no, series win against the Arizona Diamondbacks this weekend. They took two out of three, um, and that was after being swept in Los Angeles by the Angels last week. So this team has come back down to earth a little bit, you know, after the four straight wins against Seattle and San Diego. Red Sox dropped four in a row, um, including that last game in San Diego and then losing three in Los Angeles against the Angels and then winning, you know, two over the weekend against the Diamondbacks. So... You know, it's kind of, you know, this is a team where I'm not really surprised by anything that happens with this team, you know, in terms of the win-loss record. 28 and 25 is kind of about what I would expect. You know, I think that right now they're getting better starting pitching, which is great. But I think the bad thing is, you know, they're struggling for offense. You know, they won a game. 2-1 to one this weekend, which was great, but then lose 4-2. to two. You know, had games in L.A. that they only scored four runs in three games. So, you know, it's kind of, I think I just go back to it kind of being an, a case of, you know, ebbs and flows throughout a season. 162 games, you're going to go through stretches, and I'm sure I say this every season, you know, that you're going to go through stretches where, you know, like the Red Sox did at the beginning of the season, the bats were on fire and they were the reason that the Red Sox were, you know, in games and the starting pitching was terrible, you know, but now recently the Red Sox are kind of getting into a, a rhythm with the rotation with Sale pitching great. You know, I think Paxton, for the most part, in the starts that he's made, he's been pretty solid. Brian Bayo has been much better. You know, Garrett Whitlock pitched great on Saturday in his first game back in the rotation. You know, Kluber is out of the rotation, which I think was a really good move by Alex Cora. And I think, you know, now this team is starting to get a rhythm with their starting pitching. The problem is, you know, the runners in scoring position, that batting average has dipped. 
you know, they're not, you know, hitting home runs has become, you know, they've not been able to hit a lot of home runs recently. You know, I think that, you know, it's just the offense just going through a cold stretch. And I think that, you know, hopefully this is a team that can return home, you know, home for seven straight games all this week. You know, Cincinnati this week starting tonight, um, and then Tampa Bay this weekend, including a doubleheader. So, you know, you hope that they can kind of, you know, get some home cooking coming home, coming home and being 28 and 25, you know, 15 and 11 at Fenway, which, you know, isn't the best record. But I think, you know, it may do the team some good just to be home. Um, you know, I think certainly this is a team that's continued to have, you know, injuries, especially in the middle infield, I think with their depth kind of being tested with Arroyo and Yu Chang being, being on the injured list and, you know, trying to come back up in the rehab assignments. Um, and so I think, you know, for the most part, you've been able to get decent contributions um, from guys like Pablo Reyes and, you know, Valdez, um, you know, Kike Hernandez. But I think, you know, batting-wise, this team just needs to get, you know, back on track and get a little bit more consistent, you know, being able to put up four, five, six runs with ease um, so they can help out their pitching because, Yes, it's great. They're getting great starting pitching, but it's like it becomes more and more of a strain on the starting pitchers if you're not able to give them good enough run support. Um, I know that Hauk struggled on Sunday, but this was a team that had opportunities. You know, had the bases loaded, I believe, in the seventh inning. You know, left a couple guys on base in the eighth or ninth. I can't remember which it was. Um, may have been both. Um but I think the Red Sox, for them to be successful, they need to have both things working at the same time. Starting pitching and driving in runs, especially, you know, in those situations where they really need it, you know, runners in scoring position, you know, getting big hits with two outs, you know, things like that. So I think, you know, bringing in a Cincinnati team that has, you know, not really been a good team for quite a while, you know, could do the Red Sox some good because, you know, they got the Tampa Bay Rays coming into coming into Boston over the weekend, and they think that, you know, it could be a huge series in terms of determining, you know, what this Red Sox team really is because I think through 53 games, we kind of don't know. You know, I think in terms of the record, it's pretty much exactly where I thought they would be. You know, if I had to guess after 53 games, it's probably pretty close to what I would guess their record would be. Um, I think it is important that the Red Sox are going to get um, Adam Duvall back relatively soon. I think he's starting a rehab assignment maybe today um, as he works his way back from a broken wrist. You know, Trevor Story, I think, still working his way back. You know, probably don't see him until close to the All-Star break you know, if not after, which I think could be great if the Red Sox can get a couple more, you know, bats into this lineup, be a little bit more consistent offensively um, because it's kind of been hit or miss over the last couple of weeks. You know, the offense has kind of 
you know, gone away. I think since that, you know, May series against Seattle that they scored nine and 12 runs. Well, actually, you know, we're still in May. <laughs> you know, that series that they had against Seattle where they scored nine runs and then 12 runs in consecutive games. You know, they have not been able to score, you know, more than seven runs. They've only scored seven runs once. You know, so I think it's a great sign that the starting pitching has really started to come around, but they need the offense to kind of pick up the slack. Um, and I think, you know, home run hitting, I think, was always going to be, I don't want to say an issue, but I think was always going to be something that they probably weren't going to be able to hit as many home runs. And so that's where kind of the situational hitting is really important for a team like this, where, you know, they don't really quite have the power bats that you thought they would at the start of the season. You know, granted, Story's injured, you know, and it'll probably take him a while to be back. But I think, you know, for this team, being 2-5 and five in their last seven is not really where they want to be. You know, I think that, again, it's great that Sale is pitching so well. It's great that, you know, Brian Bayo has been a little bit better. But they really need it all to come together. Um, or else they're really going to get, you know, pounded in the bottom of the standings, you know, and they are relatively close to kind of the wild card spots, but, you know, this is a team that really, you know, needs to be able to take advantage of home games. They need to take advantage against, you know, series against bad teams. Now, granted, you know, the Angels have been a pretty decent, you know, Arizona has been a pretty good team this year. Um, but I think you hope that the Red Sox can build off of this series win um, against Arizona when they come home tonight. Bayo will uh, get the ball tonight. Paxton will go tomorrow. And then Chris Sale will go Thursday night. So it'll be interesting to see um, if the Red Sox can, you know, get back on track. I think for the most part this year, they've done a good job at, you know, being able to win series. But I think this series against Tampa Bay this weekend um, is going to be massive, you know, in terms of in terms of you know what it looks like the rest of the season. Um, so I think we will return to talk a little bit about the standings. Red Sox are currently um, in fourth in the American League East, nine and a half back of first place, three and a half back of the Yankees, who are in third, and. So Cincinnati will come into Fenway tonight with a record of 29-24. and 24, And then the Red Sox will play uh, Tampa Bay this weekend as they are an MLB best 39-17. and 17. So I think that is probably going to do it for the Red Sox. First pitch tonight at Fenway is at 7-10. Three games set against the Cincinnati Reds. So I think we're going to move on, talk a little Patriots. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, there is a, quite a bit of Patriots stuff to get to. Um, you know, I think we'll first start with the news that came out last week that the Patriots were um, docked a couple of OTA practices. I think because a couple of sessions had ran long. And so the NFL, I guess, you know, I don't know what the correct word, not, I don't know what the correct word is, but you know, saying the Patriots are not going to be able to have two practices 
um, because I guess of the meetings going along. I don't know the full details of that. I'm sure that you can look that up, but, you know, it's obviously not great, um, but they're not the first team that has ever had, you know, these types of issues. And I think that, you know, folks that want to be dramatic about it are going to be dramatic about it, and you can't really control those people. But, you know, I think stuff like that happens. I think that there are plenty of teams in the last couple of years that had lost, you know, practices because of maybe like running practices in pads when they weren't supposed to or something like that. I think it was this kind of accounted to, you know, meetings, players being in, being like players being in the facility too long or longer than they should have or something like that. Um, so, you know, obviously it's not great, but, you know, things like that happen and it's really nothing you can really do about it. So, well, I mean, I'm sure that there is something you can do about it, but it's not really a huge deal. But um, getting to some personnel moves, the Patriots um, unfortunately had to put Raquan McMillan on injured reserve. I believe it was some type of Achilles injury um, that he had suffered last week, which obviously is a, a tough blow because they think that he you know, had games, a couple games last year where he, play, where he played pretty well. Um, so it's just, you know, too bad because the Patriots, are, you know, the linebacker group is, it's not thin, I shouldn't say that, but I think, you know, losing someone like that is definitely a blow. So, you know, we'll see if that affects the, the linebacker group going into the season. The Patriots did also uh, sign Anthony Ferkser as an unrestricted free agent, has been in the league for five years, spent the last year in Atlanta, played at Harvard, was a rookie free agent um, that signed with the Jets. He's played for a bunch of different teams. Um, he's played in 69 regular season games, 115 receptions, 1,207 yards, and five touchdowns. Um, so kind of not sure what to make of that. You know, the Patriots, I think, outside of Hunter Henry and Mike Gesicki, you know, it's kind of a up in the air what else they have. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if Ferkser makes the roster. Um, I don't really know what really to expect out of him. You know, seems like kind of more of a receiving guy, you know, less of a blocking tight end, which I think the Patriots kind of do have a need for, so... Be interesting to see him in camp. Um, and then I think some other news, the Patriots are signing uh, numbers to new players and some of the rookies. If you've been paying attention, you may have noticed that uh, Christian Gonzalez is wearing the number 50, which I think is pretty common for like the Patriots' first rookie draft pick because I think I remember Mac Jones wearing that uh, two years ago so they have not I think they haven't set numbers for the rookies but they have set numbers for the uh, veterans Jabril Peppers uh, switching from three to five five was his college number you may remember him from Michigan James Robinson will wear number three Juju Smith-Schuster will wear number seven. Uh, Mike Kosicki will wear number 88. 
Riley Reef will wear 74. Uh, just some, you know, names of the guys that they brought in. Um, and the rookie numbers are just, I think, numbered 50 to 67. You know, that includes the draft picks and the undrafted free agents, including Malik Cunningham, who is 64, Christian Gonzalez, 50. And then the Patriots draft picks went 50 to 63. You know, so don't expect these numbers to last. Uh, the Patriots did also come to terms with Jake Andrews, their fourth-round pick out of Troy at center. So the Patriots still with the top three rookie draft picks that have yet to sign. I don't think that that's not normal. I think that is pretty normal, you know, that they should sign soon. Um, and then kind of, kind of wanted to leave this for last, kind of the big news earlier this week, and we'll talk about this maybe in a little bit, the Cardinals choosing to release DeAndre Hopkins, you know, and I think that it could be a possibility for the Patriots. I thought that he wasn't ever, like, in my opinion, I didn't think he really was a trade candidate for the Patriots because I always thought that there was a good chance that he would get released, you know, and I always thought that, you know, wasting an early draft pick for him was not the smart thing to do, that it almost would have been smart to wait for him to get released, which he did, and now the Patriots, like, actually have a decent amount of cap space, and they could, in theory, bring him in. I do think it's a real possibility. don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's, like, a guaranteed to happen, but the Patriots do have a legit chance, um, and I do think that I would go for it. You know, certainly, if they did make that move, it would mean that likely someone on the roster would have to get cut. You know, Kendrick Bourne or uh, Devontae Parker might need to get cut, you know, for that to happen. You know, I like Hopkins, but I think he's not someone that I'd give a long-term deal to. Like, if we're talking about giving him a three-year deal, I don't think I would do that. You know, if you brought it, if the Patriots want to bring him in for one year, you know, or two years, you know, that's fine. But it's just, he's approaching kind of that older age and has always kind of had some injury issues. You know, certainly missed games last year because of suspension. But I think certainly he would be a good fit. You know, now I don't know about the personal fit with Bill O'Brien, you know, with the supposed issues that the two of them had in Houston. But, you know, clearly if he does sign here, I think that he's, you know, putting that putting that to bed or putting that aside uh, for the better of the team. So it'll be interesting to see um, if the Patriots do bring him in. I mean, obviously... There are a lot of teams that would be interested in him, you know, and rightfully so. I think that there are a lot of kind of Super Bowl contenders, you know, that would be interested. I don't know. Like some of the some of the things that he was saying, he said something on a podcast last week about like the things that he would be looking for in a team that he would sign with. And I just I thought kind of the the whole context of it was weird, you know, that he was talking about how he wanted to play for a quarterback that loves the game. He wanted to play with a team that has a great defense, you know, stability in the front office, which I don't disagree with any of the things he said. It's just that in the way that he was talking about them, it was like you don't normally hear a player talk, you know, full on kind of in public about the things that he's looking for. You know, you kind of hear reports about things that guys want, but it just was kind of a weird thing that he was – talking about kind of the, 
I think demands is probably too strong of a word, but it, that's kind of what it what it sounded like in a way. So, you know, I think the Patriots could bring him in. Not saying that they will, but I think it's a legit possibility, and I think it would. You know, I think it would help. I don't think it would hurt the team. You know, I think certainly it would give them a good, you know, playmaking element. Um, but I don't think that he would be like a long-term player here. You know, I think he could be a lot like a your Brandon Cooks, if you will, where he played what, two seasons here. It was one or two seasons, you know, and it was pretty productive. So, you know, I think that'll be an interesting thing to uh, keep an eye on as we go further into the offseason. But uh, offseason activities are going on at Gillette, so that will kind of be what goes on until uh, training camp starts in late July. So we're going to move on, talk a little bit about the revolution. Really great talking to John last week uh, about the state of this team. The Revs played to a 3-3 tie over the weekend against the Chicago Fire. Revolution having two uh, come back twice in this game, uh, down 2 nothing after 22 minutes, uh, but the Revs were able to tie the game before half on a couple goals by Noel Buck and Bobby Wood, which were a couple guys we talked about on the guest Friday last week, and then Josie Altador getting the, the tying goal, which was good to see. So not exactly the best team in Major League Soccer, the Chicago Fire. Um, in fact, they're actually one of the worst teams, but you know, I think it showed the Revs' ability to battle back, you know, down 2 nothing in the first half. The Revs erased head deficit in a couple minutes. You know, great to see Noel Buck get a goal. He's been, probably been one of the best, you know, Revs players this season, you know, outside of Carlos Heel, uh, who was able to come back in this game. But I think he's been a great, he's been great, you know, Bobby Wood has been a great bright spot for this team. And I think, you know, really showing that he does have, you know, some stuff in the tank as he actually does lead the team in scoring as four goals um, in 12 games that he's played passing uh, Carlos Hill and Verdioni for the uh, most goals on the team. You know, Hill has three, Verdioni has three, and Noel Buck, you know, getting his second. He's been excellent. Bobby Wood's been great. Defense was a little bit shaky in this game, and I think, you know, as John and I kind of talked about, it's, you know, kind of clear that Andrew Farrell's not exactly the same defender that he used to be, and I think, you know, not having someone like Kessler back there, you know, is really kind of affecting them. Um, and now, you know, Brandon Buys hurt as well, you know, so you got Dave Romney and Farrell back there really with their hands full. Um, but I think... You know, that's where you have the luxury of having, you know, Petrovich back there that, you know, he oftentimes can bail the team out, you know, with great saves. But I think there are some games where sometimes, you know, he, he can't do it all and the team, you know, has to play better defensively in front of him, you know, do a better job of, of, of marking up. And, you know, there is one goal in the first half where it was like, the revolution were almost running into each other defensively and allowed a goal. And it was just, you know, you can't afford to have those things happen. You know, this is a team that's had, you know, some issues defensively. You know, they've not been able to 
win a game in a couple weeks, you know, losing that game in the U.S. Open Cup, you know, losing the previous two games. It was good that they could get a point, you know, with the tie against Chicago, but this is a team that needs to play better in front of the goal. Um, and I think, you know, looking at kind of a tough week that they have with um, a game midweek against Atlanta United, and they have to go on the road to NYCFC next Sunday, next Saturday. You know, NYCFC not having a great start to their season. But Atlanta United is right behind the Revolution, just two points. So I think this will be a really huge game. It is worth noting that the Revolution and Atlanta match will be on FS1 uh, tomorrow in Atlanta. So you'll be able to watch the game on television if you don't have Apple TV+. Plus. Um, so it'll be interesting to get a look at the Revs, see how they do. Uh, 7 o'clock Wednesday is the, is the start against Atlanta. And then 3.30 is the start on Saturday in New York. So the Revolution are currently sitting at third place in the Eastern Conference, uh, three points back of Nashville FC, Nashville SC, I should say, um, and then eight points back of FC Cincinnati, who's had quite a start to the season. They've only lost one game. They are one of two teams that have only lost once this season, LAFC is the other team. So Cincinnati setting the pace in the East. Revs just a three points back of Nashville, but they are two points ahead of Atlanta, who they'll play Wednesday. And then one point ahead of Philadelphia. Revolution will play 11th place NYCFC this weekend. So I think that that's probably going to do it for the Revolution. Um, not really a whole lot of Bruins stuff. Um, there's honestly not really anything, to be perfectly honest, you know, unless you want to talk about the two teams that are in the Stanley Cup that can't say that I'm super psyched <laughs> as a Bruins fan, you know, to see the Florida Panthers and the Vegas Golden Knights in the Stanley Cup. You know, I think that I've kind of made my feelings pretty clear on the Bruce Cassidy thing, that it's like... To me, it doesn't really sting if they win the cup. You know, maybe from an optics perspective, it does. But it's just like, he was the right it was the right decision to get rid of him. And it kind of is proven that it was the right decision. You know, so I don't really want to spend any time on that. You know, Florida winning the cup, I think that would sting a whole lot more. You know, I know that you might use the argument that, oh, the Bruins lost to the defending champ. Or the Bruins lost to the champs, but... You had a 3-1 lead, and you kind of should have beaten them in that game five. So, you know, all I'm going to say, but I think for those of you um, hockey, uh, <laughs> one of those, I shouldn't say it like that, but one of those big time, you know, people that are very interested in hockey, you know, like looking at salary cap stuff, um, I recommend that you look at Cap Friendly. Uh, which is this great website that I use all the time. You know, has all the team's rosters in terms of, you know, player contracts, who's, you know, free agents and stuff like that. They have a lot of really cool tools. You know, you can basically play GM and create like a an off-season thing where you can sign players, trade players, and things like that. It's a great website. So I should say that the uh, 
cat-friendly website has now moved past the last season's numbers, and you can now look at, you know, what the teams are looking at in the offseason. So for the Bruins specifically, you know, you have seven forwards that are under contract, um, and then the rest of the co- rest of the roster for the forwards are all free agents. You know, you got Trent Frederick, restricted free agent, and then Bergeron, Bertuzzi, Foligno, Hathaway, Krejci, and Nosek. Um, all the unrestricted free agents, pa- Patriots. <laughs> the Bruins only have two defensemen that are unsigned, Connor Clifton and Dmitry Orlov, um, and then Jeremy Swayman, obviously, the goalie. In terms of the non-roster guys, guys that might be worth mentioning, uh, Chris Wagner, unrestricted free agent, uh, Mark McLaughlin, Jacob Lauko are needing new Restricted free agent contracts. Um, Jack Ashan, Connor Clifton, Jack Sean, Connor Carrick, I should say, are unrestricted free agents. And then the Bruins have Brandon Bussey and Kyle Kaiser and Michael DiPietro that are goalies that are not signed. So don't think that any of these contracts would affect the Bruins um, as probably those contracts would be like two-way deals. Uh, the Bruins are only looking at about $5 million in cap space, so there's going to have to be some big changes. They're going to have to get you know, creative, I think, with a couple defensemen making you know, over $3 million. The, the, I keep saying the Patriots, I don't know why, but the Bruins may be looking to move on from a couple of those guys just to save some money. Really kind of don't know what the offseason is going to look like, but I think for me, in terms of the guys that you definitely need to bring back, are Swayman and Trent Frederick, in my opinion. From there, you know, I don't know what you do. Do the Bruins really want to keep Tyler Bertuzzi? I mean, I think, honestly, it's Bertuzzi or Hall. That either one of those guys is not coming back, and the Bruins are going to have to make a decision on which guy they want to keep. You know, me personally, I may have changed my tune on this, I kind of would like to keep Taylor Hall. You know, I think he's a little bit more responsible in the defensive zone. You know, Bertuzzi, as good as he was in the playoffs, you know, arguably was your best forward in that first round, had some issues with turnovers um, in in the defensive zone. So I think, you know, Hall's a little bit more responsible. He is a little bit older. You know, that's obvious. Um, But I think... You know, who knows with Pergeron and Krejci, I think it's really this offseason could go a bunch of different ways. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, so I think that's probably it for the Bruins. But again, you know, if you are a hockey nerd like myself, um, and you like looking at, you know, salary caps and stuff like that, definitely recommend Cap Friendly. I honestly would not recommend it, cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, So if you're interested in that sort of stuff, definitely go check that out. So I think that's probably going to do it for um, all the Boston teams. So we're going to get to some other notes, some notes from the NBA. A couple of teams hiring a new head coach. The Bucks hiring Raptors assistant Adrian Griffin as their new head coach. And the Philadelphia 76ers announced yesterday it was yesterday, the day before, that they were hiring uh, Nick Nurse to be their new head coach. So Raptors uh, coaching staff 
getting picked off a little bit, so it'll be interesting to see um, who takes over in Toronto. The Nuggets are opening as pretty heavy, heavy favorites um, in the NBA Finals. Finals will start Thursday night in Denver. Um, the NBA is also investigating referee Eric Lewis over an alleged uh, burner account, which, to be honest, is kind of comical, but it's also probably not a great look on the NBA's. Um, it's probably not probably not a good, probably not a great look for the NBA. I'll just say personally. Um, I think in terms of the finals, you know, looking at these two teams, I'm not going to say that the Heat have no chance because that wouldn't be appropriate because I think they're very well coached and I think, you know, it all kind of flows through Jimmy Butler. I don't think that he played very well in the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, no, I shouldn't say it like that. I think that it was kind of after game two, he kind of wasn't really the same player. You know, I think if the Heat are going to have a chance, they're going to need Caleb Martin to have another great series. It's honestly a crime that he was not awarded Eastern Conference Finals MVP. Insane to me how he wasn't given Conference Conference, conference Finals MVP. That's so crazy. Um, goes to Butler, which doesn't. I don't think he was that good in the last four games, to be perfectly honest. But, you know... As I said, I just think the Nuggets are the best, most well-rounded team. You know, Jokic is playing at a really high level, which is just, like, normal for him. Um, but I think that he's motivated because of, you know, all the conversation about the MVP that, oh, you can't give a guy three-time MVP if he's never won a title. Never won a title, you know. I think that's pretty enough motivation for him. Uh, Jamal Murray, you know, is playing the best he's ever played. And I think, you know, proving that he is indeed the same guy, you know, after that ACL injury, um, he's been the best player in the playoffs, in my opinion. Um, and so I just, the, the the issue with the Heat is, you know, Bam, I think, is a good all-around player. But I think like Jimmy Butler, he wasn't that good in the last couple of games in the East Finals. And it's just, he needs to score, like he needs to average 20 a game in the Finals for the Heat to have any chance, you know, because they think the Nuggets are, you know, they're not going to play around like the Celtics do late in games. And I think as much as everyone wanted to say, oh, the Celtics are, you know, the most talented roster or whatever you wanted to say, I think the Nuggets are, you know, kind of showing that they are the best team in the NBA. And so I think that they win the series, um, but I think the Heat could win a couple games, at least make it interesting, which I think would be good for the NBA. But end of the day, I think the Nuggets are just the best team. Um, and I do stand by that even if the Celtics had won this game last night, I still think the Nuggets would have beaten them in the finals. So I think... That's going to be it for the NBA in the NHL, obviously. Uh, Vegas finishing off the Stars last night in Game 6, 6 to nothing. So they win the Western Conference for the second time in their history. The Stanley Cup Final will open up on Saturday night in Las Vegas as Florida travels to take on the Golden Knights. And so I think, yeah, I think that's it. Actually, we're going to move on. 
to the NFL. Um, well, actually, I probably should talk about the Stanley Cup final, who I think is going to win. Um, I just, it's really hard because I think, you know, Florida may be the better team in this in terms of the performance that they've had since game four against the Bruins. They've only lost one time. And I think them just being able to play at such a high level, you know, it just hard for me to pick against them. The only reason that I would pick against them is the long layoff. They've had a long layoff. You know, Golden Knights just finished their series last night. You know, in terms of the in terms of the just look at the date of when the conference final in the East ended. So May 24th. So yeah, it will be a week and a half between Florida's games. So I think I kind of always favor the team that just recently played. Um, you know, it is kind of going to be a bit of a long layoff for the Golden Knights as well, but I do kind of think they're the favorite here. Um, I just think that, you know, they've been mostly the best team in the playoffs. You know, they've had some bumps in the road, but I think they've been consistently the best team. Um, but it's just, it's it's hard to know with Florida because it's like there have been a bunch of series that I think, or well, maybe not, because I was trying to think of, you know, the teams that they played. I know that Toronto and Carolina were higher seeds than Florida, but, you know, it just seemed like Florida was the better team, and they proved that, you know, winning those series in five and four games, respectively. Um, but I think Vegas, this is the best team that they are going to play other than the Bruins, and so I don't know how they look. You know, I really don't know what to make of the goalie matchup with Bobrovsky. You know, he's been excellent. You know, he's been probably one of the main reasons why they've been as good as they are. You know, Kachuk is going to get all the spotlight, and rightfully so. He's been the best player in the playoffs, but, you know, Bobrovsky's been great. You know, Aiden Hill has been pretty good. But again, I think it's this postseason is, again, showing you that you really don't need to have like an elite, you know, the guy goalie, you know, you can go through with, you know, journeyman guys like Aiden Hill. So I probably would give the edge to Florida in terms of the goaltending, you know, defensively, I still not wild about Florida's defense, um, even though they've played well in the postseason. Um, I think Vegas wins, but it is really hard to pick against the Panthers. Um, I do expect that this goes six or seven. I don't think that this is going to be a short series. I don't think Florida is going to be able to, you know, beat Vegas in a seven-game series just because they're so deep. But it's like, you know, Florida's kind of has that luck thing. You know, in that conference final against Carolina, they won two in overtime, including one that went to four overtimes. Then they won another game, one to nothing. And then they won the game four clincher. Was it three to two, four to three? Kachuk scored with five seconds left. So it's like, you know, Florida's kind of been, I don't want to say getting lucky because that's not the right thing to say, but they've played so well in these one-goal games. And I just, 
it's hard for me to count them out, but I just, at the end of the day, I think Vegas is a better team, um, and I think that they end up winning. I think Jack Eichel has a big series um, in this in this series, and I think Vegas wins in six. Uh, playoff MVP. I have to take a quick look at the stats um, in terms of who I think would win. Uh, you know, maybe it is Eichel. You know, if he has a a great Cup final series. You know, I do expect that. Here's something that actually might be crazy. I wouldn't be surprised if Vegas, let's say Vegas wins this series. Eichel just plays okay, but Kachuk plays great. There's a possibility that he could win playoff MVP, even if they don't win the Cup. I do think that it's a real possibility. We don't see that often. I think that uh, Jean-Sebastien Jean Jaguer was the last guy that won it for the losing team, I want to say. I think it was 2003. They, the Ducks played the played the Devils. Devils won the series, but I think Jaguar won the Cutsmith. I think he's the last guy that's ever won the playoff MVP on the losing team. So I do think it's possible Kachuk could do that, even if the Panthers... Uh, don't win the series. I think he could be playoff MVP easily. Um, so I think I do like Vegas to win the series. Um, so I think we'll move on to the NFL. Just some notes here. Uh, the Cardinals obviously cutting DeAndre Hopkins, taking his dead cap hit of $22.6 million. Um, it, there was a report that came out that Jimmy Garoppolo signed um, a waiver for his foot injury for the Raiders. So that was kind of an interesting thing there. So I don't know, you know. Oh, so no, it's, it was, he wouldn't pass the club physical. Um, and the waiver addresses the foot injury. So that the, it sounds like the Raiders could terminate his contract um, until he passes a physical. So kind of, you know, interesting there. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting to watch that over the course of the offseason. It sounded like Derek Carr had gotten some help from uh, John Gruden and installing the Saints offense as the two of them obviously could work together in Vegas. I can't remember if they were still in Oakland at that point. Um, so I think that's probably going to do it. Um, it will be interesting to see which team signs um, Hopkins. I think that there are some teams out there, like the Bills and the Chiefs specifically, that I don't think have very much cap space. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if, they bring him in, you know, what kind of cap stuff they would have to do. But I think the Patriots are a legit landing spot because they do have a somewhat of a decent amount of cap space, you know, so bringing him in would be easy. You know, certainly they still have to come to terms with the three rookies. I think Gonzalez, obviously the first round pick, Keon White and Marte Mapu. I think, uh, yeah, I think those are the only three. Um, so I think we'll talk a little bit about some baseball. Uh, 
Hendricks returned for the Chicago White Sox back from battling cancer. So uh, quite an emotional return for him as he pitched one inning for the White Sox and their loss to the Angels yesterday. Um, Marcus Stroman throwing a one-hitter for the Cubs yesterday against the Rays. Red Sox will be uh, playing the Rays this weekend. Uh, I'll take a look at the standings. As we mentioned, the Rays have the best record in Major League Baseball at 39-17. and 17, Four games in front of the Orioles for first place. In the American League Central, the Twins lead the Tigers by two games. The Rangers lead the West by three games over the Astros. In the National League East, the Braves lead the division by four games. The Brewers lead the Central by two games. And the Dodgers lead the West by a game and a half. So I think that's probably going to uh, do it for me. Looking forward to talking with uh, Derek Welsh later this week. You know, we'll get into all of our uh, thoughts about the Celtics you know, thoughts about the series, talk of talk, thoughts about this series with the Heat, thoughts about the offseason. Um, so looking forward to that conversation. Um, as always, you can listen to the pod on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and we will speak with you on Friday.